Okay. Take me into the Holy of Holies. Talking about this here tabernacle. So, uh, you all know what that is, yeah? No, that was two, three weeks ago. These are the linen curtains. Oh, no, that's a different veil. That'll be next week, too. Well, see, the deal is no one's ever seen them because, of course, there's no iPhones, no YouTube. It was inside the temple. And I'm old, but I'm not that old. So nobody can describe what they really looked like. And unlike with the ark and uh, with the menorah and the table of showbread and all that stuff, there's no real description of what they looked like. It's just sort of, sort of vague. So uh, different people think different things because the only thing that, you know, it gives the size, of course, of them. And... Uh, tells you the colors doesn't say anything else so we have no idea what they actually looked like other than they would be pretty awesome um, so we've been talking about I don't know if you've been following along uh, okay <laughs> uh, we've been talking about the tabernacle and uh, you know the Lord the desire the Lord had to live with his people which is pretty weird you know, the creator of the entire universe wants to come and dwell with his people. Seems uh, odd. So we've looked at that and why perhaps he wants to do that. And then we're looking at the tabernacle and the various parts of it and what those things might mean and how it's a picture of, or I see it as a picture of uh, uh, the Lord's body it, it's even a picture of us. I mean, there's all these prophecies and stuff just by looking at the things of the tabernacle. So we did a brief, uh, very brief overview of the outside of the tabernacle, the sort of the structure. And if you recall, the structure is, and we'll get into this, you know, we're, we're following along in the order that it's, uh, it comes in the book of Exodus. This is the way the Lord explained it. So we're following the same uh order that he laid it out in. Uh, so the outside, if you recall, is all badger skin and camel hair. It didn't, it was not attractive, nothing that you would desire, kind of looked like a big coffin in the middle of the desert. It wouldn't, it, there's nothing about it that would, that would dr draw you in. And then we go inside and the, and the uh, scripture starts with the mercy seat in the ark and the ark contained the word of God, you know, the 10 commandments. Aaron's rod that budded, uh, his authority, and the, uh, the manna, his provision. So those things are in the ark, and then the mercy seat, it said, dropped from above. So it's a picture of Yeshua coming down, and the priest would go in once a year and sprinkle both the ark and the mercy seat with blood. And it's always, it's always the same picture of the Jew and the Gentile, the uh, Judah and Israel is the way they call it. it. The New Testament and the Old Testament, it's, it's all the same. And all, there's all these pictures throughout scripture that would indicate uh, that they are, you can't have one without the other. And there's a number of verses, you know, Revelation 14 and 12, I think it is, that's describing the remnant of the people. And they are those people who have both the testimony of the Messiah and keep the commandments. So that picture goes all through scripture. You have to have both. And Israel, of course, would represent us. 
um, as you know, Israel just means under God's authority. Doesn't we know we didn't replace Israel or anything like that, but we are the people who have uh, we 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 found the Messiah, and we're really good at knowing the Messiah, but we totally are terrible at the commandments. And then the Jews are really good with the commandments, but totally miss the Messiah. So the picture all through Scripture: Ezekiel thirty-seven, the two sticks, Paul and the two olive trees. Uh, Malachi, Hosea, Jeremiah, all these things. It all describes that the end of time as the end cannot come. The things that we read in the book of Revelation cannot come until, as Malachi says, the hearts of the fathers turn to children, hearts of children turn to the fathers. When Judah and Israel, which is what Ezekiel said, come together in, in one stick, we we have to get the Torah and they have to get the Messiah before the end can come. And so if you recall, you know, we're all really good with the whole New Testament thing. And the disciples ask Yeshua, well, what will be the signs of your coming? And so he laid out all the physical signs, you know, earthquakes, pestilence, wars, you know, all the things that he talked about. And so we get all focused on that. But the Tanakh or the Old Testament tells you all the spiritual things, the signs to see before the end of time. So you have to see them both. And the tabernacle I'm trying to make the case for is the same way. It's, uh, it's prophetic of many of those things, but it also has these very cool pictures in it. So like I say, we've already said, yes? Is the tabernacle also being rebuilt? Is that another Yeah, that's the... Sign? Yeah, yeah. And there's a group called the Temple Institute in Israel that is in charge of those sorts of things. And they claim they have everything needed. And in 90 days, they could erect the temple if they just had access to the spot, which is, yeah, it's on the, well, the Dome of the Rock is supposedly in the uh, courtyard of where the temple should be, which is actually exactly what Revelation says, because the the courtyard of the temple will be given over to the Gentiles. And that's certainly one way you can look at Muslims because they're not Jews. There's only two groups, you know, Jews and the other people. So they're the Gentiles. You know, it's a, it's a long, fun study. But they claim that in 90 days they could have it and they have all the implements and all the, the you know, everything that we're learning about, all of the, 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 the blankets and the things that they wear and the, menorah and the ark and all of that stuff they claim they have or have access to don't know we'll see oh yeah the candlestick you got to have the menorah so um that's what we're looking at is the things des described in exodus that make up the temple so today we're going to talk about uh the linen curtains which are again there's no specific instruction in scripture for us to glean from. With everything else, there's a pretty adequate description, and we could make a, you know, a reasonable guess as to what it looked like. With these curtains, don't know. They're blue, purple, and scarlet, and there's gold cherubs in them. That's all we have. So any picture you see is just somebody's, you know, idea or thought. Um, Okay, so that's where we are. It's starting in Exodus 26, verses 1 and 2. And it says, Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, 
blue and purple and scarlet with cherubim of cunning work thou shalt make them. The length of one curtain shall be eight and twenty cubits and the breadth of one curtain shall be four cubits and every one of the curtains shall be the same size or have the same measure. So when we looked at the, you know, the outside of the temple, it, it's, you know, it's pretty dull. Once you go inside, it's stunning with all of these linen cloths and all the gold implements and all of that. And that's pretty much the way Yeshua is described as nothing, you know, nothing really to set him apart. You have to get in and know him. And it's the same way with um, Christianity or, or whatever you want to call it. People look at it from the outside and go, there's nothing there for me. You have to get on the inside and see how beautiful it is. And you have to know those things. So just right out of the gate, the temple is a picture of that. Um, so we're, we're laying the case for this temple representing both God and us. And the outside would sort of represent our bodies. And all through scripture, our bodies are referred to as tents. And that's because that's the way it's referred to here and throughout the Tanakh. So it gets translated into Greek and Latin and English and all that stuff. And they retain this idea of this is a tent. And for the same reason as that is a tent, it, it's not what's outside that's important. It's what's inside. And we've looked at the tents, heart, mind, and soul, as you, you know, with the, the ark and the mercy seat and the table of showbread and the, and the menorah. And it's the same with us that the tent is meaningless. The tent will, you know, the tent will go away. It's not going to live forever, but it's what's inside. That's important. The heart, mind, and soul. So uh, when we're reading this and again, reading it in English, you know, you don't get much in Hebrew, the, 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 the linen is described, and you won't get much from this either. Shesi Shazar Ya'era. Shesi Yazar Ya'era is the way it is in Hebrew, and it's translated in the fine twisted. Um, it's, it's fine linen, which is unusual for the time. Uh, but I mean, even today, the finest linen comes from where? You know, right there, same, same general area. It's a fine linen that's twisted. I, apparently, it says it's a fine twist or a fine twine. And that's unusual in that it takes so much more effort to do. If the denier of the yarn is bigger, you have less to do when you're making a garment. So you can build more garments. You know, and anything you had back in those days, you had to make. It's not like you could run down to Costco and buy a pack of them. So this whole idea of the, the, the thin, twisted yarn to, to a Hebrew or to anybody living in that culture and time would identify the wearer as someone special. These aren't work clothes. These are special clothes. Um, and this other word in here, you know, is the fine twisted, it's bleached. So you take the yarn and they bleach it so that it's all white. It's the same color. And, you know, we, we hear about that all through scripture as well. And then they take this white fine linen and they dye it. And it doesn't say how, it doesn't give you any insight into the process or the, the way or the colors. You know, is it just patches? Is it tie dye? You know, no one knows. All we know is it's this color. So uh, 
this idea of special clothing sort of starts here because the linen in the tabernacle is made from it. And it's, it's unusual, it's special, it's different than, than what your tent is made of. You know, all the people camped in the tents all around the tabernacle formed this big cross. And they, their tents were made of material, of fabric, of, uh, of goat's hair and all of these different things. They didn't look like this. None of these guys had linen like this. It wouldn't make sense to have it. But this gives you this idea of the special clothing. And I'm sure you can think of a hundred verses in scripture you've read that equate being a believer or becoming a believer or being, uh, being a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with fine clothing. The wedding supper, you have the, the, the groom and the bride are dressed in these fine clothes and they have ornaments and implements and all this cool stuff that you don't normally wear. So there's always this underlying picture, at least if you're a Hebrew, with these fine clothes and this fine fabric um, meaning something or being a picture of something. So I'll just give you a, a few for instances. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joy joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me in the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself out with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And of course, the, the type of clothing you're wearing, the physical type of clothing you're wearing doesn't make any difference. This is a, just a picture of something that happens to your heart, to your soul, to your mind when the Lord enters you. You know, you become as though you were dressed in all this finery and all this. Psalm 30, uh, 132, 9, let thy priests be clothed with righteousness and let thy saints sound for joy. Again, it's putting somebody in a nice suit doesn't make them a nice person, but it's a picture of what the Lord does when he um, comes in you. Zechariah 3, 3 and 4, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel and he answered and spake unto those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him, he said, behold, I have caused thine inequity to pass from you and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. It's, it's again, it's this idea of the filthiness of the world falls off. And of course, changing your clothes doesn't make any difference, but it's the idea of what happens to you. And that's this idea of the temple. It's made of these things for this exact reason, to keep that in your mind. So the finely twisted linen, if you remember our Christmas deal, um, where the baby Yeshua was swaddled with spargano, it says. And re do you remember who was doing that? Who provided that? And it was the priest, right? Because he was cousin to Mary, knew they would be there, knew exactly who this child was. And in those days, the priestly garments that were this fine linen, this cotton, they were sanctified unto the Lord. So when they wore out or were damaged, you couldn't just throw them away. So you had to retain them and use them for a, uh, a, a job in the temple, something unto the Lord. So what they would do is they'd rip them up and make wicks out of them and, you know, various things that they needed. But in this case, 
the priest who was on duty, the cousin of Mary, came and brought this spargano, this ripped linen. And I suspect this wasn't a used garment. This was a new garment, but it had been sanctified. And what else would you wrap the baby Jesus in? But, but these sanctified fine linen garments. So from the very beginning, you see this picture. Um, and ultimately, uh, most denominations and, and religions, I mean, be they Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever, have taken this to heart because their priests are always dressed in this over-the-top finery. You know, you think of Catholics and Lutherans and, you know, the big hats and the fancy uh, whatever you call them and all this stuff. Well, that's, that's why. I mean, the picture that's drawn in the tabernacle is that the priests have all this special clothes to identify them as someone representing the Lord. So if you're building your own religion, be it, you know, Buddhists or whoever, the priests have to look different than the people, right? They have to be dressed one step above. And that's why most of us, you probably weren't, you probably weren't, but most of us of any age and experience have dealt with the idea of the Sunday best. There was always a uniform. There were, there were clothes that you would, you know, your mother would make you wear. Not that we ever had to go to church, but my grandmother would make me wear, you know, and you have to get dressed up. And it's the same idea. It's this understanding that dressing this way is a, is a picture or an acknowledgement that the Lord is good and you're trusting him. So all of this stuff comes from, uh, you know, from this. And we see this even in the New Testament. Matthew 22, 11 uh, to 14, it says, and of course he's describing this wedding event and whatnot. And when the king came to see the guests, he saw there was a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, friend, how camest thou hither? and not having a wedding garment. And he was speechless. And the king said unto the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into the outer darkness, for there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And we've all read that and maybe even thought, well, that's pretty harsh. You know, I've certainly not worn the right attire, but that's not, it has nothing to do with what he's talking about. And it's this idea of, once you're living with the Lord, everything changes. And, you know, and we know that. And this guy obviously wasn't. It has no bearing on what he was wearing. His heart was not with the Lord. And when the king, the father, you know, I mean, all this, you can see pretty clearly what the pictures are. Ask him about why, why are you here and not saved, basically. He didn't have anything to say. And so he was treated as you would if the Lord has not taken hold in your life. He was cast hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this idea of the fine linen is, I think, more important than, than we give it uh, credit for. So, uh, you know, this linen is bleached white. And then they do four things to it. They, they add uh, blue, they add purple, they add scarlet, and they add uh, gold cherub, cherubim. 
and nobody knows how or what that was supposed to look like if the cherubim are embroidered in or you know it's just it's anybody's guess as to what it looks like but there's a couple of things that are pretty common well let's exodus chapter 31 starting in verse 1 and this is uh, you may remember this from our trip through exodus not too long ago and then the lord said unto moshe see i have chosen bezalel the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, and with knowledge and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed a whole lob, son of Ashimach, tribe of Dan, to help him. And I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant, law within the, uh, law with the atonement cover on it, all of the other furnishings of the tent, the table, its articles, the pure gold lampstand, all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings, all its utensils, the basal basin with the stand, also all of the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priests and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests, and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. So there's a bunch of fun stuff in there, but basically the Lord appointed these two guys and he gave them the wisdom and the understanding and it's it doesn't say how or why. Maybe they were taken to the temple, you know, because Moses saw the temple, right? Maybe they were taken there and saw it. Maybe there was some sort of, you know, written instruction manual. Probably the Lord just imprinted it on their mind. But you think about this. How would people even know how to do this stuff? I mean, half the stuff people don't know how to do today. And obviously it's because the Lord had done just what he said. He gave these guys knowledge and wisdom to do these things exactly as he wanted. And throughout, uh, certainly throughout this section and, and many places in scripture, it will tell you the temple has to be created exactly the way the Lord said, exactly like the temple in heaven or whatever it was Moshe saw, exactly. You can't vary it a bit. And again, it's not because people wouldn't fit or they wouldn't be comfortable or, you know, whatever. It's because it has a meaning far past its, its meaning as a building. And that's kind of what we're trying to look at. Uh, it's interesting that this, these two guys he gave wisdom to, Bezalel, that means in the shadow of God, and Aholab, which means the tent of the Father. So he prepared these guys to build this place that he could live. And, you know, and remember, this is, it doesn't even make sense why the creator of all the universe would choose to want to come live with these people. Why would you do that? But he did. That was his desire from Genesis 1.1. He's building a house for his children to live in. And he's choosing to come down and live there, but it has to be just so, not because 
he's a perfectionist, although I'm sure he is, but because everything in it is a message. So if you were to read this uh, in the King James, it says, and the hearts of all that are wise hearted, I have put wisdom that they may make all I have commanded. So it's in the hearts of all that are wise hearted, I've put this wisdom. So it's these two guys and some other people. And these other people, it says he's are wise hearted. Then it's not clear if they're wise hearted because they are following the Lord or for some other reason, or if they just came to that. It doesn't say. It just said there's so many things in the scripture it just says, and you're left to dig it out on your own. We don't know what it what what he's trying to say. But I guess the question I would have. And all, and in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I have put wisdom that they may make all I have commanded. Okay, that was helpful at the tabernacle. But certainly the Lord knew that the tabernacle was going to go away. Number one, this was just one in the desert. This was a temporary structure until they got the real deal. But he knew that the real deal, he was going to allow it to be destroyed because the people weren't using it for what they were supposed to be using it for. So I guess the question is, does this commandment end? Did it end with the destruction of the temple? Did it end with the changing of the temporary to the permanent? And I would suggest that it doesn't end. That if those that are wise-hearted, he's put wisdom in, in presumably our hearts to do all he's commanded, I would see that as being bigger than the temple. If he's put those things in our heart, we, like these guys, should maybe take it to heart and do the things that he's asked us to do. And of course, in order to do that, you have to know what, what he's asking. And if you don't read, if you don't know the Tanakh, if you don't know the things he's asking, you can't possibly fulfill those commandments. Okay, so the very last words the Lord spoke to Moshe on the mountain are these, Exodus 31, starting in 12. And the Lord said to Moshe, say unto the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for generations to come. So you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days the work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of, of Sabbath rest, holy unto the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is put to death. The Israelites observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. When the Lord finished speaking unto Moshe on the Mount, on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tables of the covenant of the law and the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So Daniel and a bunch of other places tell us, helps us to identify who the enemy is. And in one of those things, I think Daniel 7, 14 or something, he talks about the enemy. You can tell the enemy because he will be the guy that tries to change the times and the season tries to change the feasts, basically, and the holy days. Yeah, exactly, the Pope. 
<laughs> among others. <laughs> and you look back through the history of, well, who actually changed all this stuff? You know, and it all started with Caesar because he's so anti-Semitic. He claims to have seen, you know, the vision of the cross. And you know he, you know he didn't get it right because he claims the vision said, conquer by this. And that's not the way the Lord operates. But be that as it may, he seems to have missed the point that his Jesus and all the people who wrote this Bible that he's both writing and reading are all Jewish. So how is it that he hates the Jews? But he does. And you read his writings and they're just frightening and terrible. So he created his own religion, his own church, so that he wouldn't have to do what the Jews did because he hated the Jews. So he had to change the day of worship from what we would call Saturday to Sunday. He had to change all the feasts from the days they were supposed to be held to these arbitrary days. He, he, it was his goal to change all that. Well, if he'd read Daniel, which he certainly did have, he would have known that that's probably a bad thing because that sort of identifies you as a major enemy of the Lord. But anyway, the last thing the Lord said to Moshe on the mountain was keep the Sabbath. It's a very important thing to him. And he gave him the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, exactly what it looks like, exactly how he wants it run. And it revolves around the Sabbath. So you can expect the enemies of uh, God to do everything they can do to change that. And they've been, you know, remarkably successful. So again, I believe most of this stuff is a picture. You know, were these things actually done and carried out? Probably most of them were. But this, I, excuse me, this idea of... Uh, you know, anyone who does any work on the Sabbath day is put to death. Did that happen? I don't think so. You know, certainly they would be uh, ostracized, but that's what he's saying, isn't it? Is if you're being separated from the people, that ultimately is death because you're being separated from God. So not obeying his words, you know, that when, when we talked about uh, the stoning of your children when they're bad, right? You two have made it. That's good. Um, that never happened. And that's, it, it was never meant to happen. Because if you read on, there was a whole bunch of things that you had to do. And those things were never going to happen. The picture is disobedience brings death. It's the same picture here. Disobedience brings death. If you just want to flaunt my laws and do whatever you want to do, that's death. You can't do, I mean, you can do it, but don't do it. So you see all these pictures, but it's just interesting to me that the last thing, which was presumably the most important thing, the thing he wanted Moshe to remember most out of his 40 days and 40 nights with him, constantly talking about the tabernacle and this and how we're going to do that and all these other things. And certainly the Ten Commandments or instructions and all of this stuff. The most important thing for him to remember was, hey, by the way, do not let them mess up the Sabbath because that is the most important thing. And of course, you know, we've messed it up pretty good. Okay. Um, but remember, it was a perpetual covenant. It was set aside. The Lord knew, he already knew, obviously, how long the tabernacle was going to last. He knew what the people were going to do. The things that he asked 
are separate of that. He wants you to do the tabernacle. He wants you to come and worship. He wants all of these things to happen. The priest to teach the difference between the holy and the profane. All of this stuff is true. But then he says stuff like the Sabbath is a perpetual covenant. And he says this about a lot of things because he already knew all of the things that these would be tied to would be gone. All of the things that we put our faith in, the church and riches and tanks and all that stuff, that would all be gone. So we need to get beyond that and past that. And we need to trust in him and what he says in all circumstances. And there are people, there were people then, there are people today that have this same sort of, you know, the tabernacle was destroyed. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? What has God done? What are we going to, you know, it doesn't matter. It's never mattered. It was a picture. It's an instruction. It's a guideline. Learn the lesson and then carry on and live your life when there is no tabernacle or when there are people attacking you or when there's some disease that maybe or maybe not is, you know, I mean, whatever it is, there's always going to be something. There is always going to be a tabernacle destroyed in our lives, always and constantly. And if we get too wrapped around the axles about we have to have to worship in this tabernacle because it's just perfect. And then it goes away. You need to be separated from that. You just need to learn the lesson. So that's what we're hoping to do. Oh, and what do you think, Sadie? So as I said, we, we, we've been told the colors and the fact that there's gold cherubim. We know nothing else. You know, all of the hows of what they actually did have been lost in the mists of time. The actual, how did they get this purple dye? Okay, it comes from mussels. Well, I lived in California for 20, 40 years. They're purple. But I've never, you know, I mean, I've eaten 10 tons of mussels. I don't recall getting purple. <laughs> I recall some beautiful New Zealand green lips that we ate one night and they had little crabs in them because the mussels had eaten a bunch of baby crabs. So it was a crab and mussel feast actually. But I've never gotten purple, even out of our purple California mussels. How did they, do, what is the process through which you do that? To get the red dye, I'm sure you all know this because you've probably all done this at home. You go out into your garden and you dig up maggots or grubs, they're called, I guess. And you squeeze them and do something with them and you get red dye. Well, how do you know that stuff? An onion will do it? Okay, there you go. See? Well, these guys did it with maggots. Well, I mean, how do you know that? You just... You look at a white maggot and think, oh, wow, red dye. You know, the Lord had to tell them this. How did, how did they make this, this candlestick with six wings and a main shaft and all of these knops and berries and out of one piece of gold? How did they cover all this acacia wood with gold? I mean, we can't even do half this stuff today. So the Lord had told these two how to do it. He told them the secrets of the mechanics of how to do this stuff. And the secrets of the mechanics did not survive past these guys. We don't know how to do it today. But the pictures of all this stuff did. And that's what we're supposed to learn. Um, as you're reading throughout, particularly the Tanakh, you will read about 
blue, purple, and scarlet, or blue, purple, and red. I think it's 26 times it says blue, purple, and red. It's never purple, blue, and red. It's never red, blue, and purple. It's, it's blue, purple, and red. And those are the colors of the linen inside the tabard. That's your wall paint. Now, is it striped? Is it just like a little tie-dye? The color, don't know. Doesn't matter. This guy didn't know either. That was just what he thought. And it really isn't that important, but it is a message, I think. So the gold we get, gold's easy, that's a deity. The cherubim are, you know, pictures of their angels, pictures of God, their gold. Okay, I got that. But blue, when you look up, looking for God, the sky's blue, right? You, you, you can relate blue to heaven. You can relate blue uh, to the sky, to the color. Um, blue is the color of the Holy Spirit, or, you know, it's... As you read scripture, you'll find that blue is always related somehow to heaven or to the Lord. And blue is a primary color. Red, and we've talked about this, so I'll beat this horse to death. But red is the same. It's the root word for Adam, Adam, for um, ground, for blood, for... Uh, it's this picture of earthly uh, Esau, earthly, ruddy Esau was red. That's what they called him, right? It's always when you see red, it's, or not when you see red, when you think red in scripture, you tend to think of earth, you think of man because it's earthly, ruddy, blood, you know, it's that sort of thing. So if blue is a picture of God and red is a picture of man, both of those are primary colors, which means you don't add things together to get them. That's, that's what color they are. But if you mix red and blue, what do you get? Purple. Well, that's interesting because all through scripture, that's what they say. We are to be kings and princes. We're to be priests and kings. We're to be, uh, ultimately, we're to be clothed in purple. Well, how do you get purple? It's red, man, and it's blue, God. And if you read the whole story, you begin, it's not, you don't mix it 50-50. It's 100% red and it's 100% blue and you get purple. And if we're to be kings and priests, we're wearing purple. And how do you get purple? It's a combination of man and God. That's exactly the story of scripture. And that's the story of what you would call the New Testament scripture. But it's all written in the Tanakh. All these pictures, that's where the New Testament guys got it. Because there was no New Testament. They had to get it from the Tanakh. And this is a picture that is as old as the tabernacle, as old as, as, as uh, Moshe being freed. And, you know, this was, has always been the picture. It's always God and man. Man is sinful and God is not. And you get them together and you get a king. You get a priest. You get a child of God. And that picture goes all through scripture a hundred different ways. So Moshe brought down all these uh, commandments and instructions and judgments and statutes of the Lord, which included things like uh, clean and unclean animals. There's certain things you can eat. 
certain things you can't eat. And of course, we all know you can eat them. It's not that, you know, they're bad. It's just, there's a picture here. And it's interesting. And this picture goes, you see this all the time in scripture. The blue comes from a muscle, from a crustacean. It's unclean because it's a filter feeder, right? And God put filter feeders, pigs, uh, you know, goats, things like that, to eat the, the garbage on earth so we wouldn't get sick. And that's, you know, why would you eat out of a garbage truck? God doesn't want you to eat out of a garbage truck. So he says, don't eat pigs. He says, don't eat mussels and clams and things that filter their food from the garbage on the bottom because I built those specifically to keep the water clean, to keep the land clean, to keep you guys safe and healthy. Why would you eat from a garbage truck? So those things are unclean. But that's how you get the color, bless you, is from a muscle, which is unclean. And it's suddenly transformed into something that you see in the very tabernacle of God's house. And then you go out in your garden, and you dig up grubs or maggots, and somehow you make, again, that information has been lost in the mists of history. Somehow you make red dye out of it. Well, they're not clean either. God doesn't want you eating maggots and stuff because he put them there for a purpose to keep the earth clean and to keep you healthy. Bless you. And if you eat those things, that sort of destroys the purpose, right? And that now we have the FDA and all our food is, or whoever it is, all our food is good and healthy and you can probably eat pigs and maggots all you want and you won't get sick. But still, it's a picture. So he takes these things that are unclean and somehow uses them in the cleanest possible place there could be the temple. And that, you know, t t people sometimes freak out about, oh, it can't be right, you know. I... But you think about the pearl of great price. You think about the 12 gates into the New Jerusalem. You think about um, the red heifer. There's these purple and red. Th you think about all this stuff. And what's the lesson? God, only God can take something that's unclean and make it clean. He can make something that is unfit for his service and make it fit for his service. We can't do that. That's a God thing. So he insists on showing us these pictures all the time. And again, you walk into the tabernacle and it's impossible not to see that. What, the grub part? <laughs> Yeah, and he makes us clean. Yeah, we are totally and completely unworthy. We are grubs and muscles, you know, when you get right down to it. And he takes us and makes us clean. And he dresses us in this fine twined linen. And, you know, th those are the pictures. Um, and I guess the other thing to think about is it's hard enough to make purple dye or blue dye. It's hard enough to make blue dye. Because I don't know how you do it, but you have to get a bunch of muscles. It's hard to make red dye because you got to get a bunch of grubs. But in order to make purple dye, you have to get the muscles and the grubs. So it's twice as hard. So naturally, purple is the color of deity. And he dresses us in the, the, the king's robes, which are purple. That's the hardest thing there is to make. And it's twice unclean and yet he he makes it clean just as 
it, it's like, this is unbelievable. I'm going to show you something that is totally unbelievable and I'm going to do it just so you know it's me. And that's the way he operates. First Timothy uh, chapter two, verse five, it says, for there is one God, blue, one mediator between God and man, red, and the man, Messiah, Yeshua, purple. It's just, you know, you can do this a hundred times. There's all these verses that if you think about them, draw the same picture. Okay, so the scripture goes on and talks about, we've talked about the, the linen that's lining the inside of the tabernacle, but you've got to hang it up, right? So he describes the loops and the clasps. So, and, you know, and again, when you read scripture, it's helpful to know what the numbers mean. And it's often very illuminating. So we know that there's 10 curtains because they, you know, we just read that at the beginning. There's 10 curtains and we either read it then or we'll read it again. They're divided up into two groups of five. So you tie the curtains together end to end, five of them, and then the other five, and then you tie those two together. So these 10 individual curtains make one thing and they're held together with these loops and clasps. So the first picture you should get, well, the, I guess the first picture would be 10 is always, the, it's a smaller picture of a larger hole. You know, when a rocket is, is, is lifting off, they tune in the TV, 10, 9, 8. Okay, well that countdown's been going on for months but the only ones that are important are the last 10, right? That's, we still do that today. <clears throat> so this is the same story, bless you. You see 10 of something, it's generally a smaller picture of a larger hole. So everything that's going on here, it happened in the tabernacle for sure, but it's just his way of saying, but that's just a picture. This, this idea or whatever I'm trying to teach you is going on for all time. So there's 10 of them, smaller picture, larger hole, two, you probably know, number of witness testimony, five, the number of grace. So God's testimony of grace is just the smaller picture of a larger hole. And the, the obvious picture is he's taking all of these parts and bringing them together to make something useful which is exactly what he does with us. We all have different interests and desires and opinions and attitudes. Then he takes all of these things together and puts them in one bowl and he creates, you know, what the uh, New Testament church would call the body of Christ, the body of the Messiah, because it has all these different, you know, uh, I'm not good at, certainly anything you guys are, maybe I have a little more common with Dan, but we all have different interests and desires and abilities. And that's not an accident. That's on purpose. And that's this picture. You have 10 individual cloths that are created into five groups that become one. That's exactly what happens with us. So let me just read you this, uh, Exodus 26, starting in verse 3. And it says, five curtains shall be coupled to one another. The other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain and on the end of one set. And likewise, you shall do on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. 
50 loops shall you make in one curtain and 50 loops shall you make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set that the loops may be clasped one to another. And then you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with its clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. Often in scripture, they express things, perhaps not the cleanest, easiest, point A to point B, and this is one of them. You're taking, when you build these curtains, at the edge, you're building five, 50 loops out of the blue fabric. And you've got 50 loops on the other side. You put them together and these gold clasps. And this is all it says, gold clasp. There's no instructions. We don't know if they're spring-loaded or, you know, how they were. We don't know anything about them. And we don't need to know. The point is, gold is bringing these things together. And gold is deity is God. And it is God that brings the 10 pieces together. It's God that brings, you know, the people in this room and all the people in the worldwide interweb together, because we're all different. And left to our own devices, we would probably not find each other, we'd have different interests and all that stuff. But because the gold clasp brings the pieces together, we find ourselves sitting in a room discussing the same thing. It's just the way God works. The word translated as coupled is kabar, and it's translated in various places in scripture as join himself, coupled together, in league with, compacted together, charming, which is interesting, heaped together and knit together and the like. So these, these uh, coupling of these uh, cloths, of these 10 linen deals, is, isn't an accident. It's, it's, it's on purpose. Judges 2011 says, so all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, knit together as one man. That's that word that they use for the coupling for the clasps. It's knit together. All these individual pieces from all these different places and all these different colors become knit together in the service of the Lord. I would say, you know, amen to that. Um, the purpose of all the colors and clasps and loops and all that stuff is expressed at the very end of verse six, which was a couple of verses back. And it's Akkad HaMishkan. It, you might, you know, you won't remember it from when I said it because I don't say it very well, but this word Akkad is the Hebrew for one. It's the word, I mean, it's, it, it is literally the word for one, but the meaning is also uh, singleness, unity, it's the number of God, because there's only one God, there's none like him. So it's one, ha is the, and Mishkin, of course, is the tabernacle. So the whole purpose of all of this stuff that we've learned so far and looked at so far is exactly this. It's, it's one tabernacle. When we, and we just breezed over this, but we'll get to this in a week or two. The exterior covering of the tabernacle is the exterior covering. It lays on the tabernacle. It's not necessarily part of the tabernacle. This is one with the tabernacle. The gold, the red, the purple, the blue, us, if you will, the people and God together to make purple, surrounded by these gold cherubims of God. These are one, these are the Mishkin. These are the tabernacle. It's not these are no different than the boards of gold that support it, than the uh, 
the laver and the menorah and the temple of showbread and the ark and the mercy seat, these are all one thing. It's, it's one part. It's one piece. So if we are the purple or the red inside this tabernacle, we are part of that tabernacle. And we've had this uh, lesson before and a number of other places. It's not complete if all the parts aren't there. You know, just because you think you're nobody, you're just that guy or that girl who does this thing or that thing, that is famously important to the Lord. That, that nothing the Lord does can be done without you, without those things, because we're all that little cog, we're all that little part. And if you take a part out, then the thing doesn't always run right. It might run, but it won't run as well as it should or could. And that's the picture a bunch of times. And that's what he's saying. This, this linen, which is in essence, a picture of us is the Mishkan. It is the tabernacle. It's as important as any of these other parts. And don't think you are not that important. You are. If you're a follower of the Lord and you believe these things and follow after him and your life is like that of the tabernacle, you are important. And it's, it's the same picture. You look at the tabernacle from the outside and it's, eh, looks like a big gray coffin in the desert. Who wants to go there? But you go in and it's fabulously beautiful and it's heartrending. It's, it's the most magnificent place on earth. That's who you are. Yes, exactly like the story of the 99. He'll fetch after that one because it's important. And that's, you see that all through scripture and you see that all through this Mishkin. And we think, oh my gosh, it's, you know, it's fabulous and I'm nobody. Well, that's, well, you're half right. It is fabulous, but you're not nobody. You're, you're an integral part of this. Just like this linen, it is one with the tabernacle. Ikad Hamishkan. It's one. It is the tabernacle. You are the tabernacle. You are those, you're that important to the Lord. And you think about, and we go over this all the time, you know, Ezekiel, you've got the two sticks. One is marked Israel. One is marked Judah. The whole purpose, the Lord says to Ezekiel, is bring these sticks together into one. You, you, he can't if you're not part of the program. If you're not either a Jew or an Israelite, you, you wouldn't be brought to, you wouldn't be part of the deal at all. Same thing in Malachi, same thing in Hosea, same thing, you know, with Paul and the olive trees. This story is, is everywhere, everywhere you look. A week ago, two, two weeks ago, maybe, we were on the Temple of Shoebread, and you had 12 loaves of bread. It gives you the recipe to build the bread. And then we saw a picture. Now, you guys have seen the picture. You guys haven't. <laughs> you think of the 12 loaves on the temple. I always thought like 12 loaves, 12 Wonder Bread loaves, you know, on the table. Except the Lord gives you the dimensions of the table, there isn't room for 12 loaves. So the, the picture that I chose to show you was the temple of showbread with two posts in it and six donuts, in effect, on each side because that's the only way you're going to get 12 loaves on that little bitty table plus the pitcher and the snuff deal and, you know, and all the other stuff that has to go on it. They're stacked. 
and they're not loaves like you know we think of a nice square loaf with a round top and maybe a cut in it or something these are loaves from those days they're round they're like donuts and you stack them together now the recipe to build them was the same every one of them has exactly the same stuff inside but outside they look completely different that's the lesson we're the same inside if we follow after the lord he's changed us the, the recipe is the same but on the outside and you could be a, a, a carpenter or a painter or a, uh, I don't even know what you guys are. Something important, I'm sure. You could be a guy who does everything for Vail. You could be my wife who knows everything, my daughter who knows the rest of whatever she doesn't know. <laughs> or you could be a guy like me, you know, I don't know anything. Well, if you break it, I can fix it. If you need it built, I can construct it. But I mean, the rest of the world is a mystery to me. I don't get any of it. It doesn't make any sense to me. And that's okay, because I'm like that, that bread, like the third one up on the left, you know, it's a little crooked. And it's like higher on one side than the other. So everybody above it's going the wrong way. But the recipe is the same. It's made out of the same stuff. It just looks different. Okay, so all through Scripture, you can't get away from this. This is the truth of Scripture. It's everywhere. So if you recall, or if you were here, oh no. Um, see, I don't like this whole electronic stuff. Um, Genesis 1-1, I think the fourth word, third word, no, the first word. The Lord is building a house. The very, the way you start reading Scripture, the first word or two, the Lord is building a house for his children. Everything after this first word, Bereshith, until you get to the very last word of the book of Revelation is about this house. It's about getting his family, his kids, his son, his son's wife and all the children in this house. That's the whole story of scripture. So the fact that he's building this tabernacle as a place where he can live with us is not a surprise. The fact that the book of Revelation is all about getting us to this house is not a surprise. All the instructions from the first letter or the first word in the book of Genesis all the way through the end of Revelation are the instructions on how to get us there. Do we want to be children of his and in that house or do we want to be somebody else somewhere else? So this tabernacle is just another um, one of those stepping stones. Just it's It's just... It's just this picture. It's just another instruction. It's just a confirmation of these things. This is, this is how, you, how you get to me. This is not, uh, you know, you have to do these things or else. These are, this is what your life will be like. These are the things that you will know. This, this will just come to you if you see the pictures I'm drawing for you. You'll know that the recipe is the same inside for all of us but we're all different on the outside. And that's on purpose. That's not only is that fine, that's the way he designed it. We have to be different in order to make up the whole body. And so there you go. That's the linen and the clasps.